0: Fifty years ago, Alice Smith, a member of the Relief Society General Board, stood in the Salt Lake Tabernacle and foresaw the service and relief that millions of visiting teachers, as they were known then, would provide as the church continued to grow throughout the world. She promised that women engaged in Christlike service would become a standard to the nations. Today we are thrilled to have Sister Sharon Eubank on the show to discuss the power of ministering sisters as they're known today and other lessons we can learn from Alice Smith's message that was given in 1969. Hello, and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the inspiring stories and teachings of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Carly Guyman, and I'm here with Shailene Back. We are your co-hosts.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today. We feel incredibly grateful to have on the show with us Sister Sharon Eubank of the Relief Society General Presidency. Welcome, Sister Eubank. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. We know you have a lot of assignments and other important responsibilities, and so we're grateful for the time you're taking to be with us. Just as a reminder for those joining us for the first time in this season of the Latter day Saint Women podcast, we're learning from women featured in the book At the Pulpit, which is a compilation of short biographies and
0: discourses given by Latter day Saint women throughout our history. At the Pulpit is a church publication that's available online and in the Gospel Library app for free, and we have had some really wonderful experiences this season of the podcast, sitting down with both historians and prominent Latter-day Saint voices to discuss women from our history and the lessons that we can learn from them today, so we hope you'll check out our other episodes. And we recognize that many of you maybe haven't heard of At the Pulpit or read the discourse that we're discussing today, but don't worry. We think that you'll really enjoy this conversation and be inspired by what you learn and hopefully go check it out later. Just to get started, I want to introduce Sister Eubank and then we'll get into our discussion of a woman from our history named Alice Smith and her teachings on ministering and compassion. We're excited to have Sister Eubank's insights on this topic.
1: And many of our listeners know and love Sister Sharon Eubank. She's the first counselor in the General Presidency of the Relief Society. And at the time of her call in April 2017, Sister Eubank was employed as the director of LDS Charities, the humanitarian organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and she continues in this role while serving in the General Relief Society presidency. Sister Eubank was born in Redding, California and is the oldest of seven children. She served as a full-time missionary for the church in the Finland-Helsinki Mission and 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 received a bachelor's degree in English from Brigham Young University. After graduation, she taught English as a second language in Japan, worked as a legislative aide in the U.S. Senate, and owned a retail education store in Provo, Utah. Since 1998, she's worked for the Church Welfare Department, helping establish LDS employment offices in Africa and Europe before directing the LDS Charities Wheelchair Initiative. In 2008, she was asked to oversee the humanitarian work in the Middle East as the Regional Director of LDS Charities, and in 2011, she was named the Director of LDS Charities Worldwide. She believes serving others is the very DNA of being a member of Christ Church and the heart and soul of the Relief Society. So I think we definitely have the right person with us today <laughs> to talk about visiting teaching as it was once known and ministering opportunities that we have today
0: as women.
2: Well, people don't often think that ministering and humanitarian are the same thing, but it essentially is the same work.
0: <laughs> the same, yes. The same work. So as we mentioned earlier, this season, we're focusing our discussions on the life and teachings of women from our history. So today we'll be learning about this former general board member from the Relief Society, and her discourse that was included in At the Pulpit. So we want to give our listeners a brief introduction to Alice Smith, um, who's probably not very well known. She wasn't someone that we knew knew about well. There wasn't someone, Sister Eubank, you said you knew very well or had heard about before. What, as you were getting to know her a little bit from her biography, what stood out to you or what was impressive to you?
2: Well, she's a she's a really vivid woman. She had really dramatic experiences, and she was very, very effective on the Relief Study General Board. In those days, they called her for a long period of time. I think she served 14 years mm-hmm. at a really interesting time in the church. And uh, we don't serve that long anymore, and it's mm-hmm. probably a good thing. She
0: had a tremendous impact on the church, and we ought to know more about her. I'm so glad that she's included in the book, and we're talking about her today. It is interesting as we read and get to know these women to think about how they helped shape the church as we know it today, and it's it's wonderful to get to know them better. So Alice lived from 1913 to 2006, um, and again, this talk that she gave that we're discussing was given in the late 60s, 1969. And again had a really interesting background. She grew up in Utah but moved to Washington D.C. when her father was elected to Congress, and she later graduated from Columbia University in New York City. She married and then she and her husband lived all across the country. He worked as a bacteriologist and professor, and she herself later received a master's degree in sociology from Utah State University. She had 3 children and she died at the age of 93 some really interesting international experiences. She and her husband actually lived in Israel for a couple years. She was working in a diplomatic or served in a diplomatic role, and her husband worked in research in his field. And then in the 1960s, she and her husband served as mission president and as it was at that time, Mission Relief Society president in Vienna, Austria, kind of establishing the, the first church mission in Austria. And then it was when she returned that she was called to the board. And as you said, Sri Mank served for 14 years editing lessons and writing, visiting teaching lessons, something that used to be done. And I dug up her obituary and found that her children wrote that she's remembered best for the love that she showed to all regardless of background or belief. And I like that because I envisioned her in all of these different places, reaching out to those around her who are maybe different from her and and having love for them. So, again, wonderful, faithful woman. And for those who want to learn more, you can read more um, in her biography in At the Pulpit.
1: So, Sister Eubank, when Alice Smith was set apart to be on the Relief Society General Board, Mm -hmm. it was by President Joseph Fielding Smith. In 1964, and she was told, You have been put on this board not to be silent. You are to take an active role in everything that occurs. So we just wanted to know from you what struck you about that council and why is it important that women speak up and speak out about these various roles that they have and different responsibilities?
2: I loved that President Smith gave her that kind of counsel as a board member. I, I, it really resonates to me along with the talk that President Nelson gave in 2015 called A Plea to My Sisters. And he went through and really encouraged people in the same advice that President Smith gave to Alice to speak up. And I think all the time about why are the reasons that we have a hard time speaking up sometimes. And sometimes we think that we that other people know more than we do, but that really isn't true. I think our life experiences are valid no matter what they are. But for us in the church and sometimes— in in a work setting or or in a council setting, where it is predominantly, we may be one or two of the few women that are in that council. That often happens to me. There's a rhythm that generally happens when men communicate with each other. And it's a different rhythm than when women communicate (laughs) with each other. And it's hard sometimes to, to interrupt that flow. And so one of the things that helped me is to think about being prepared ahead of time. I often will go to somebody who's running the council meeting or running the meeting and say, hey, I have some comments that I'd really like to make right here. And that kind of lets people know, oh, let's have those comments. Because Mm -hmm. sometimes you're almost raising your hand, you know, trying to say, hey, I really want to get in here. When you go back and look at Alice Colton-Smith, she figured out how to work with that new kind of rhythm. She was bilingual. I think she spoke very well to women, but she also spoke well to mixed groups and to just groups of men. She learned how to communicate in a way that resonated. And maybe that's because she learned to communicate in Israel when it was, you know, a brand new country after the war. And she opened up Vienna and and trying to communicate in those other languages. I think that those kinds of experiences of how do I get my message across helped her function in this way. So you look at her life, she really applied what President Smith asked her to do.
1: And I'm reading through her biography. I was a little bit intimidated just with her education and all of the things that she was able to accomplish in her travels and in different um, assignments that she had. But I, I love what you said and I appreciate what you said because basically our credentials are as women in the church. You know, we have a unique perspective and our life experiences give us
0: something to say and a valuable voice that we have. Mm-hmm. So thank you. And I think that that's really constructive counsel that you've given, that women can, can decide ahead of time, I have something I want to share here and I have something that I know is important and I'm going to find a way... To, to share that in a way that it will be heard. I thought a lot about why President Smith said that to her, and I don't know the reasons why,
2: but I think about how critical it is that we each share our individual experience. That's what the council is for. And if we don't speak up, if we hold back, that piece of the issue remains a gap because we didn't give our perspective. And so he was
0: just telling her, look, you have something of value. We need to hear it. We're going to make space for it. And you say it. So Sister Eubank, you and Alice Smith have some interesting things in common. In addition to experience on the Relief Society board, you both have experience living in Washington, D.C. You both served as missionaries internationally, and you both have provided outreach to the Middle East. But you also share a belief that service is at the heart of following Jesus Christ and being a member of his church. So why is service at the heart of who we are? And how can we become known as a people that we serve like Christ did?
2: I love that question, Carly, of how can we be known as a people who serve? Because it's really an expression of our our most inward feelings about Jesus Christ. He came to earth with all power and all knowledge as he grew to it. But what did he do? He served people. He served people one on one. I've said this before, but I am just blown away that he has his gospel to preach, his church to set up, ministry for the whole world, and what does he spend his three years doing? He starts in Dan, he goes down to Beersheba, he goes back and forth, it's about 122 miles, and all he does, essentially, is talk to people, listen to people, testify, teach the gospel on how it applies one-on-one. And so that example of ministering, I think his church has to be that example, And it's not going to happen in a corporate way where we all of a sudden baptize hundreds of thousands. It's going to happen one-on-one. And so it comes down to each one of us living those commandments to love God and to love our neighbor. Mm
1: -hmm. And that's what ministering is for. So because we're Mm -hmm. following the example of Jesus Christ and we want others to feel God's love for them and that we're all children of God. And anyway, I just love that we're following Christ's example in our ministering efforts. Mm -hmm. Well, and Visiting, teaching, and ministering have been around for a really long time, so 1843 is when the program started. So obviously this program looks a little bit different than it has in the past, but Sister Eubank, what are some principles of ministering that have not changed? And can you share how you have come to learn these principles or how you've seen them demonstrated by others even just in your various experiences and assignment and with sisters you meet around the world?
2: It's a really good question. In 1843, when the Relief Society was brand new, there were four wards in Nauvoo, and so the sisters, I think they chose four sisters for each ward, and they had two purposes. They went to visit people in their homes and find out what's going on, what need, is there sickness, how's their financial statement? You know, Nauvoo was in flux, there was a lot of things going on, and they needed to know how people were doing. And the other thing that they did, they took donations. So they'd bring a basket and they'd ask, they'd say, so-and-so needs matches or so-and-so needs food. And, you know, they'd collect donations and share out those donations as they went along. And that has changed the Relief Society, the, the visiting teachers, the ministers no longer solicit donations. We solve that problem in other ways through the humanitarian fund, through the fast offering funds. And that sort of is a good development because it frees us up to really just listen to what do people need. So as the change happened and we moved from visiting teaching to ministering, and it has evolved over the years since 1843, a lot of people have said, well, we can't visit people in their homes anymore. We can't give a message anymore. So what are we supposed to do? Mm -hmm. And the answer I always give is you do whatever they need. You are free to figure out anything they need, and just do that. The fetters are off. You don't have to follow a a rote program. But if somebody needs a visit in their home, by all means go to their home. If they want a message, give them a message, share some scriptures, talk about something that's important to you. My own visiting teacher or my own minister, I was out of town and my sprinkler pipe broke. So I get a call from somebody saying, hey, there's water flooding all through your flower bed. <laughs> and I didn't know who to call, but I called her and I said, look, there's this broken pipe. She goes, I'll take care of it. So she went to my HOA and they talked. Anyway, she fixed that problem while I was out of town across the country. To me, that's exactly what I that's needed. That's exactly she did what, needed. what I needed. Yeah. and I
0: was so grateful. <laughs> my ministering sister recently came over after my baby was asleep because I realized we had like no baby formula left. My husband was gone. She came over. She watched him while he was in bed, and I quickly ran to the store and I was like, that's all I need. That's what I really, really needed right now. And to be able to know that we have someone to call on, I think that's for whatever it is that we need to have that friend, to have someone that's that's going to be there for us and watch out for us.
2: There's so many things that we can do for each other, those kindnesses that really make us feel supported and loved. But ministering is beyond just being nice because everybody can be nice to each other. But we also have the chance to spiritually help each other. And I think that goes beyond doing good service, which we do, but it means listening to people, really finding out what's going on in their life. What questions do they have? What's on their heart? And we don't have enough people in our lives that do those things for us. We're busy and everything. And to have somebody whose spiritual calling in the church is to make sure that you're doing all right even spiritually, and to listen to you. And I think that addresses one of the modern problems that we have because we get so isolated. There's nobody who understands our hearts, Mm -hmm. and here's a chance for somebody to do that.
1: Well, and we can't all go to the bishop or the same leadership just to, you know, express our feelings and our concerns and our discouragements, and so it is nice to have, in the the talk that Alice Smith gives, she says a best friend. She Mm -hmm. says not the most intimate friend. It doesn't have to be the most intimate friend, but just a best friend that will be there for you and listen. And sometimes that is all you need. Sometimes you need your sprinkler fixed. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you just need someone to, to talk to. Yeah.
2: You know, my Relief Society presidency changed yesterday. So it was one of the few times I was in my own ward and they introduced the new Relief Society presidency. And she stood up when they called this woman. I thought, are you kidding? She is the most pressed person I know. She is living (laughs) on the very edge of her capacity. And now she's called to be the Relief (laughs) Society president. But she got up and said something so moving that I, I wrote it down. So I brought it just so that I could tell you what she said, because it goes along with this feeling of what ministering really is. She said, most of you have seen me go through some things in the last few years. You've seen me walk a hard line, walk a hard path, and you've loved me in my ups and downs. I promise to do the same thing for you. The thing I also promise to you is that I will keep your name safe, that I will see you for who you are at your best, and that I will never say anything about you that is unkind, that is not going to lift you. And I ask you to do the same thing for me because I'm frankly terrified of letting you down. I just loved that.
1: I'm speechless because if everybody in a leadership position or, or in a ministering position felt that way, I just think of what an amazing difference that would make Mm -hmm. in our capacity to serve and to love and to lift.
2: She ended it by saying, This is my pledge to you and my pledge to the Lord. And it took down all the barriers. And if we could feel that way for each other, our hearts really would be Mm -hmm. knit together.
0: A way that Alice Smith describes that is that we are all serving as emissaries of Jesus Christ. And she invited those who were serving as visiting teachers, not to think of themselves as just a visiting teacher, but as someone who's representing Jesus Christ. And she asked them to imagine that Jesus Christ had said to them, I want you to be my emissary. I want you to tell the women that you visit or minister to that I love them, that I am concerned about what happens to them and their families. I want you to be my helper, to watch over these sisters, to care for them." So how can our perspective on ministering, and I feel like you're addressing this, it's not just about being nice, right? It's about becoming someone that we can speak heart to heart with, but how can that change, our perspective change when we view ourselves as emissaries of Jesus Christ? I'm really struck in the
2: scriptures by how often Jesus Christ does two things essentially. He basically says, what do you want? What do you need? He asks that question over and over again in the scriptures. So. On the shore of Galilee, at the very beginning of his ministry, Andrew and John are following him. And he turns around and he says, what seekest thou? (laughs) What do you want? (laughs) Yeah, what do you want? And they're like, they don't know what to say. And so they're like, "Mm, where do you live? (laughs) And that's the beginning of, you know, their ministry. And after three years, after he really refines their desires of what they'll do, as he's leaving, as he's ascending back up into heaven after he's been resurrected, he asks each of the apostles, what do you want? and they say, Lord, we want to come to you where you are, except one person. And John the Beloved asked for something different. He asked to stay and minister and remain. And I think of the growth between those three years for John. What do you want? And he comes up with, where do you live? (laughs) To what do you want? I want to stay through the history of the earth, and I want to minister to people so that I can bring souls to you. And then to Peter and James, the Lord says to them, and I'm going to make you ministers for John. So that ministering of what do you want and then allowing people to get what they want through serving other people. To me, that is the crux of everything Jesus did in the New Testament with the Nephites in the restored gospel. What do you want? And we're going to help each other by serving each other. Get what we want. And to me, that's the essence of these ministering. And I think that's what Alice was talking about. You're an emissary from Jesus Christ. It's not just a throwaway calling. Mm-hmm. This, this is really the empowering. most important calling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I love that you brought up those examples from the scriptures when Christ is asking people, what do you want? What can I do for you? And so I think we can take that away from the scriptures and be asking the people that we minister to, what are their needs and wants? I think some people aren't bold enough to ask for... The things that they need. And so I'm just wondering um, how can we discern the needs of those we serve and really seek for revelation and have the courage to act on those promptings?
2: I can think of one woman who her son broke his leg. And so they got the news that day. And so she and her husband went over to the house to see how they were doing. They had come back from the emergency room. When they walked in, they came in through the back door. They come into the kitchen and kids, three kids are sitting at the table throwing cereal at each other. I mean, the kitchen's just bombed. <laughs> and she can hear a baby just screaming and screaming. She goes into the next room and the baby whose diaper is full, who reeks to high heaven. <laughs> the father's got his broken leg propped up on on a chair and he's trying to hold the baby oh, no. but he can't move that baby anywhere. <laughs> he can't change that baby's diaper. And she says, "Where's your wife?" He says she's in the living room with the visiting teachers <laughs> because the visiting teachers were going through their message <laughs> about what, and then saying, you know, if there's anything you need, <laughs> please let us. Yeah, and it's such a good example of if we just are tiniest bit imaginative, mm-hmm. if we just look around and look for the clues, we can see what people need. But if we're totally wed
0: to a script, we'll we'll miss it. And, and to me, that's such a great example. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about the courage that that requires? I feel like sometimes. For me personally, it's almost like, but I need permission. Like, I can't just go and do this for someone or I think they might need this, but what if they don't? And then I'll feel really dumb. And I think that also speaks to revelation, maybe trusting the inspiration we receive. But then how do we get the courage to be the type of person that just, you know, we're not going to do this message right now. It sounds like you need some Cheerios cleaned up in the kitchen, you know, (laughs) or how do we have that courage? I think two
2: things are important, and you mentioned one of them. I think the ability to get down on our knees and ask through the Holy Ghost, what is unspoken here? What does so-and-so need that I don't know about, but maybe that you could help me? And our outgoing Relief Society president, in her testimony yesterday, she said, I have gotten down on my knees, and I've asked the Lord, what do you need? And he's told me. And she said, I've seen the hand of the Lord in my life. So we have that experience, that revelation. It gives us confidence that we can be a good minister. But nothing beats doing what Jesus did of just saying, Carly, I don't know what you need, but I want to be a good minister for you. So can we break down the barriers and you just tell me what kind of a a, what support what what support mm -hmm. do you want? I did this to the woman that I minister to, and she said, I've just married into a family with six kids, so I've got six brand-new stepkids. If you can find anything that would help me interact with my new blended family, terrific, I'm on mm-hmm. that. But I was so glad that she asked. But you have to ask, because if we assume, we make mistakes. We do yeah, things they don't
0: want and, you know, and then don't we, need, yeah, and, we cross barriers. Mm-hmm. No, Those are good suggestions. So, Sister Eubank, as a humanitarian, you shared in a BYU forum address in 2018, that the best and most effective way to be involved in humanitarian service is to remember the power that we have as individuals to make a difference, not in huge, magnificent ways, but in really small, profound ways. So in your work with LDS Charities, where you're distributing resources and temporal relief, how have you seen the power of individual Christlike outreach?
2: One of the initiatives that humanitarian sponsors is the Vision Initiative, and it's about preventing blindness. And there's a lot of blindness that is preventable, and one of them is about cataracts. So cataracts is, you know, the darkening, the clouding of a lens, and it just happens a little bit over time. But then after a while, they can't see at all. And But that is a preventable source, and one of the easy things to do is to remove that cataract, to teach medical professionals. So we have an initiative that trains uh, medical professionals how to s- remove those cataracts, And then we provide the the solutions, you know, for the surgery, but also the new lens that has to go in because they remove that old lens and then you put in a new prosthetic lens. When people have had that surgery, they're like, I can't believe how bright everything is and how sharp everything is. If you ask anybody who's had cataract surgery, they can't believe what a difference it made. And it's so fun to be part of that, to see people who they'd be able to see their grandkids face for the first time or they'll be able to drive or work again where they couldn't. Humanitarian people call me up on the phone. They, they talk to me afterwards. They say, how do I get involved? This just touches my heart. I so want to do this kind of work. I love it. It's just in my heart. How can I be involved? And the first question that I often ask people is, tell me about the person you minister to. And there's often this, ugh. But it's truly the same work. If you are passionate about humanitarian work, about changing somebody's life, about doing something that really matters, ministering is that work. It's given to you and you're able to do it. And if you want to be a good humanitarian, be a good minister. Those work are, they're exactly the same kind of work in different fields. I have seen people, both as ministers and as humanitarians, one individual make an enormous amount of difference. I can think of one woman who basically stopped the sex trafficking in Eastern Europe because she was just passionate about it. And she worked with the governments and she broke up those rings. One woman. There's another woman in northern Iraq. She's just so passionate about training nurses, getting nurses, the training. She's completely revolutionizing the training of medical professionals in that whole country. This one woman, because she's just relentless. All of us have a passion like that, and we can apply it. I hope that one of our passions is helping brothers and sisters, not in faraway places, but right where we live in our own ward, in our own branch, people that we we are next to.
1: Something that Alice Smith says that's resonating with what you're saying is um, she teaches about compassion and how people can feel that. So she says, Years of care and distances do not matter when a visiting teacher is a concerned, loving, best friend. The visiting teacher's messages are important. The rules that govern our visiting teaching are important. But beyond and above them all and far more important is the understanding, concerned, and loving heart. She says, compassion is a way of life. And so I'm thinking of these passionate people that are expressing, you know, how do we help? What can we do? And you're turning it back on them saying, there's so much you can do here. So maybe it's just redirecting that passion and compassion that they're feeling. So I just wanted to know, in addition to what you've shared, what does compassion mean to you?
2: To answer that question, I'm going to just back up for just a little bit, because as I did some research on Alice Colton-Smith, She actually wrote a little article in the 1977 Ensign, and it was in that section called I Have a Question, and the question was something about, I've noticed that some sisters in the church are using Ms. in their title. Is this all right? (laughs) Alice Colton-Smith wrote the response, and she wrote something that I think is important to this compassion topic that we're talking about. So she says, I think that that kind of thinking is a shame for two reasons. Number one, there's no place in the gospel for judging others or stereotyping them based on the form of their title especially when you don't know where she stands on the issue. But number 2, assuming that Ms. is an undesirable word takes away a very convenient option. This is a this solves a problem in society that were really helpful. She said, "I like keeping the option. I want as many options as the gospel allows." Hmm. And you go back and look in her life, she was always trying to step outside of the rules. We we need rules for order and it gives us a process of how to do things, but she was passionate about The compassion overrides those rules. The compassion is the most important thing. She says, for me, it doesn't matter. Ms., Miss, Mr., Sister, Just Plain Alice, I answer to all of them. But I don't want to be boxed in until even my title is a must. I want to save the musts for the really important areas. I really liked that about her. <laughs> because sometimes compassion becomes a duty or a must. And we have to remember, it's a privilege. We are being asked to be the saviors. He's sending us to someone that needs us specifically, needs the things that I have specifically. It's not a duty or a must. And it's as broad as we want to make it. It's as take the rules off, like we said before, and be as generous as you can with compassion. She used it twice in that talk. She She just talked about
0: compassion is everything I like the idea of thinking of it as a privilege because I think that there's nothing on the other side of this there's nothing that brings us greater happiness or when you've done something that you felt prompted to do and you do it and you see that it was a need that you helped that you got to play a small part in helping fulfill that's a really beautiful rewarding blessing to have the opportunity to serve and to be generous
2: Somebody was asking me about the, the different assignments that maybe men have and women have in different roles. And I this isn't doctrine or scripture, but I was thinking about one of the most important things a man can do in his life is to be the kind of person that women and children and other people are safe with. He's not corrupt. He's not immoral. You know, he's a person that can be trusted. But for women, that may not be our biggest judgment. It's like my Relief Society president said, your name is safe with me. I won't judge harshly i won't apply these judgment rules that's not really my job my job is to love my job is to have compassion we can be hard on each other <laughs> we can really push each other's buttons but if we would give each other that latitude to say i don't understand fully your experiences but i'm here to help you and i'm here to
1: love and I feel like a lot of sisters in the church are, we're really, really trying to be this person and we're trying to serve and do as the Savior has asked and follow his example. But sometimes we feel very overwhelmed or we have other large assignments and other sisters with really great needs that seem hard to overcome. And so if we're just suffering or struggling or overworked or busy, what would you say to us and how would you encourage us to view our ministering assignments and feel that what we offer is enough?
2: Earlier in my career, I worked with a wonderful man named Lloyd Pendleton, and he was, he was a doer. He was a maximizer. He really got a <laughs> lot of things done. But last year uh, at Thanksgiving time, he had contracted cancer. And so I went down to visit him. I drove a couple hours and sat down with him, and I said, Lloyd, you know, tell me how you're feeling. He pulls out a legal pad. He said, I have something I want to tell you. He said, it's specifically for you. I said, okay. <laughs> he said, what do you think it means to multiply and replenish the earth? So there's a pause. I don't know where he's going with this. (laughs) (laughs) He says, this is the last month of my life. Let me tell you what I've learned. He said, we are to multiply. We're to take good work and we're to move it forward and we're to do things. But we're also to replenish. He said, we think this is about having children, and it is. But it's also about our missions on the earth. We have to step back and replenish ourselves and it's a cycle. We multiply and then we replenish. And if we just multiply, 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 and we don't replenish ourselves, we'll fall apart. He said, I burned all my candles at birth ends. And he said, I I didn't understand about replenishing until the last six months of my life. He said, I want you to know about this, Sharon. <laughs> you need to know now. To. He you said, need you, to you know, need to know this. And I did because I feel guilty when I replenish, when I take time to replenish myself. I feel like if I had more faith, if I, if I had more you know, desire, I would be doing, 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 doing. And that hurts me. As a woman, as a member of the church in the Relief Society, we have to replenish. So when I think about people that are busy and tired, and I've, I've been frank about my own tiredness, I think we have to replenish. And so for somebody like me, I say, Father in heaven, give me one thing to do today just one thing, and I promise I'll get it done. I can't promise 10 and 15, you know, I can go, my list gets bigger and bigger. But if you give me one thing, I'll do it. Well, if I did that for 50 years of my life, just one thing every day, it would be 18,250 things that the Lord wanted done that got done by me. That's a legacy. That's a, that's a legacy of replenishing and multiplying, going back and forth. And I can commit to one inspired thing every day, so that's my small piece of advice when we're tired. Replenish and do the things that replenish you and don't neglect that. But also commit to do one inspired thing every day. And I think anybody can do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I, I can do that.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> I felt very inspired as you were talking. So thank you so much for sharing that counsel. That'll be really helpful for people.
0: And I love the emphasis, I feel like, that's happening right now with President Nelson on Revelation and that there is something for you and for me and for Shailen to do every day. And if we ask, then we can have that guidance and direction. So thank you for sharing that. One question I had, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that if you asked young Alice Smith growing up in Vernal, I think is where she grew up, Vernal, Utah, what the future held for her, that she probably wouldn't have guessed Vienna and Israel and Columbia University. I don't I don't know for sure. Maybe she planned that all out <laughs> mm-hmm. or an assistant professorship at a university. And to some degree, I think many of us look at our lives and are surprised with how we've gotten to where we are now and what we're doing. And I wonder if you have ever felt that way or what you would say to women and young women about being prepared for what Heavenly Father has in store for them and to find joy in that. I was probably the shyest person you've ever met. In in school,
2: I just read. I read during recess. I read during lunch. I was a bookworm and I was so shy. So one of my first days in, in Bountiful Junior High, I went into the cafeteria and I got my tray and I'm looking around and suddenly somehow I tripped and I dropped that tray all over the cafeteria. So food just went everywhere. And I I couldn't even deal with that problem. I just turned around and walked outside. <laughs> oh. So you, you're getting a picture of what I was like you know, as a, as a 14, 15-year-old, and I could have never imagined that I would have enough confidence and skill to have to represent the church in some of the venues that I do now. So I think our lives take 90-degree turns, but it isn't always that you're shy and all of a sudden you you're called upon to do big, important things. I think sometimes, lots of times, we thought we'd be doing better or more than we are at this point in our lives. I thought my life would be different, and it's not. It's like this. But we have to trust, as long as we're doing everything we can to keep, keep our covenants, we have to trust that the Lord gave us the life that he wants us to have. And it's Every life has advantages. Every life has disadvantages, and we focus sometimes on the disadvantages of our lives. I wish my life were like this on Instagram, but my (laughs) life is like this. But we have to trust that He has given us a life that we can maximize, and we we can do things. He'll inspire us to do that one thing every day. He'll open the doors to do it, and that that life is acceptable to Him, whether it is visible to other people or invisible to everybody. And here we're talking about Alice Smith, who. She maybe was visible or she maybe was invisible, but she lived a life that was acceptable to the Lord in small and big ways, and each of us has that chance to do it. So I, I want to make my life without limits of expectations of what I should be doing at this point in my life or what, what other people might think is successful. I just want to please the Lord, and if, if I can do anything that pleases Him, then, then my life is good.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Uh, In closing, we just want to listen to Alice Smith in her own words, since we do have this recorded. We want to hear her teach about the power of ministering sisters. So listen to what she says.
3: Every year the church grows bigger, and as it does, the need for visiting teachers grow greater. What will be their future? They will help combat the loneliness and impersonality of the big cities. They will look after the stranger, the widow, the orphan, the wounded and distressed. They will look after all sisters with loving, concerned care. They will be needed as my grandmother was needed when she left her warm pioneer bed on stormy nights to drive miles with a horse and buggy in response to a cry of need. As my mother, during the Depression, found the hungry, so will they. As my visiting teacher brought me a loaf of freshly baked homemade bread and love, so will they. They will help relieve physical, emotional, and mental suffering. They will aid the sinner, and they will comfort the sorrowing. They will carry a message of gospel love to all the sisters throughout the world every month. As their warm, tender care spreads its web around our earth, they will become a standard to the nations.
1: Sister Eubank, what do you see as the future of ministering and the power it has for good? And is there anything more the Relief Society General Presidency would like the women of the church to know about ministering?
2: I think about this time in the history of the church where we have more women and men who have been endowed with priesthood power in the temple than at any other time in the world, as far as we know. And we have close to 200 temples, maybe 201 temples that are at least planned and executed. The world has never had this kind of ministering, and it's important to understand what it means. When Moses appeared to Joseph Smith in Kirtland, in the Kirtland Temple, and he gave him the keys of the gathering of Israel— and now we go in and out of the temple as anointed, as endowed ministers. We're that nation of priests and priestesses that Moses tried to create in his own time, but the people weren't ready. They still had the slavery of Egypt in them, and they they were too afraid. They said, no, Moses, you do it. Well, now, since he came back to Joseph Smith, Moses did, we are that nation of priests and priestesses. So we are ministering as anointed ministers from Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes we toss off these privileges as, eh, know whatever I've got to go ministering I've got to do this without recognizing everything that we do to knit hearts together to unify we're preparing the earth for Zion and the second coming and that's a privilege that prophets have longed for they've prayed for they've wept for through the years and it's happening in our day and we can choose to be a part of it if we understand our privileges and then act on them I would say on behalf of Sister Bingham who is a marvelous Relief Society president that this is There's a lot of difficulty in our lives. There's a lot of pressures. There's a lot of toxicity in our environments where we live. But we don't have to be afraid of that. We have been called up and anointed to be these kinds of ministers, and we have the power of God with us. And it won't mean that our lives will be easy, but it means that our lives will have meaning. And to me, I don't want to get out of this life without doing what I came here to do. I don't want to waste my time. And ministering is the most important thing that we can do for one another. It's not about callings. It's about how we treat each other. Compassion is a way of life. Thank you, Alice C. Smith.
1: Thank you, Sister Sharon Eubank, for taking the time to share your insights and experiences with us today. We really appreciate the counsel that you gave us and the things that you challenged us to do. It was very inspiring to me and I'm sure for those listening. And thanks to each of you for listening to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. And as a reminder, you can read the discourse that we discussed today in At the Pulpit, which is available on the Gospel Library app and online at
0: churchhistorianspress.org. We would love to hear your comments and ideas for what you would like to hear on this podcast. So send your feedback to podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. Until next time, I'm Carly Guyman, And I'm Shaylin Back. Thanks again for listening.